You're listening to Neurodiversity at Work. Welcome to today's episode, sponsored and powered by Dynamis Group. Recently honoured to be part of 300 years of leadership and innovation. We at Dynamis believe that business is a catalyst for positive impact in the world. By building a bridge between the top leaders of today and the brightest leaders of tomorrow. We inspire them to do things they have never done before. We're here for Neurodiversity with Theo Smith and friends. This is literally my favourite place to be of the week where I get to meet like-minded people, maybe not so like-minded people, right? That's the wonderful thing about neurodiversity as a concept. Well, this week I have a fellow author uh, on the podcast and a wonderful fellow MD, uh, I would like you to put your hands together for Shay. Shay, would you like to introduce yourself to the audience today? Let them know a little bit about who you are, what you do, what you're about. Thank you, Theo. Um, yeah, like you mentioned, um, I've just written a book um, called Black and Neurodiverse. Um, and I would say that I'm a neurodiverse individual. I had a late diagnosis. Um, definitely something I'm really passionate about, something that I'm still learning a lot about as well. Um, day to day, I work in marketing, um, and it's definitely interesting navigating that um, alongside being neurodiverse. Um, but yeah, I'd probably say that's just like a brief overview of me. Cool. So uh, when you say late diagnosis, yeah. you know, I, I hear that experience. Um, for me, it was 21 as a mature student and it was dyslexia. What was the journey for you? What was the point of where? Tell us a little bit about, you know, how you came to the concept of neurodiversity, how you then identified with it. What are some of the traits that you associate with? Yeah. Um, well, I've been formally diagnosed by an educational psychologist of having um, dyslexia, dyspraxia and dyscalculia. Um, but I definitely want to get tested um, for some other differences. Um, but yeah, there are a few barriers that kind of stand in the way, just like the cost of it. Um, but yeah, those are the ones that I'm aware that um, I do have. Um, and I'd probably say that they affect me on a day to day in different ways. Um, and I think in a way, sometimes you can mask and um, as well as mask when you're not aware, um, you find ways to kind of work away, work around it. So I definitely see them as like superpowers more than anything else now, rather than things that hold me back. Um, so I, I love it. Um, I can't help but think it gives me like a unique and different perspective and different insight in the way that I see some things. Um, and yeah, I think I've definitely, it's been a journey where I've learned to see them as strengths. Um, I haven't always. Um, and I think for the longest time, it's terrible to say, but the longest time I wasn't aware that um, I was neurodivergent at all. I just 
I would associate with like negative labels of like more like slow or I don't know maybe I'm just not the brightest spark I don't know um but now that I know um I can get like I think previously it's enabled me to get the support um I needed at school in particular um yeah and definitely still trying to navigate that in different spaces and understand and learn what support I can get that would really help and also not just support but what kind of um perspective can I add into the room or the conversation or projects that I'm working on because of it. Brilliant. Yeah. Thank you. And so interestingly, you know, I I probably identify with dyscalculia, although I've not had a formal kind of diagnosis because it came to me late in life. I'm mm. seeing it through the lens of my daughter, wow. who we have we are able to get the support and start to consider okay. the impact of yeah. it. But for me, it was it was just never a thing. It was just I I was rubbish at maths, right? Mm. So I got like a U in GCSEs, which mm. is, I, I think, you know, I managed to put my name or something, <laughs> how bad I was. Mm. So what do you think there are reasons, like for me, I think it's possibly generational, mm. but what reasons do you think of, of it being missed then? Yeah. And, and you know, those negative connotations. Um, and I, I mean, what was your experience as a, a young woman um, having to wait to get the support? And, and then when, when, did the, when did the trigger happen where it was like, actually this is something else other than me just being apparently slow or not good at a particular subject yeah well I went to a state school um and I'm still yet to kind of do a bit more research into it but um I have friends who had like private education who are also neurodivergent um and they had a lot earlier um diagnosis like or availability to like testing and screening um so I don't know if like lack of funding comes to play in some of that um I found that when um it came to like secondary school a lot of the children um who maybe were dyslexic they had received their diagnosis a lot earlier so um to be honest when it comes to like the late um diagnosis or just identifying it I'm not too sure if it was missed because when it came to sec um, primary school I I was often taken out of lessons and given like support but nothing was said to my parents yeah so I think there was a bit of like a, a barrier there between my parents like and the school especially when it came to communication um so I think that definitely came to play in it um and I think as well um aside from just being like um neuro neurodiverse too I kind of felt like there was a lot of barriers when it came to like culture and my school at the time and myself and my sister were like few like ethnic children like there weren't there weren't many black children but there also weren't many brown children like it just wasn't very diverse I think the area in particular um it was um the Midlands uh, in between Derbyshire and Nottinghamshire so it wasn't the most diverse at the time um so I think even in terms of like cultural awareness there wasn't much of that and I think as well um even for like neurodiversity I don't think there was too much of an awareness when it came to that too so I think just like with both of those unique identities, I don't know, I often felt like a, a stuck out like a sore thumb, but there wasn't really, um, yeah, there wasn't really opportunities for screening or testing. Um, not that I remember anyway, or not that it's noted down or reported anywhere. Um, so it wasn't until like university that I got the opportunity to um, firstly get screened, then get tested. Um, and even the way I got to university, 
uh, it's not the most conventional or traditional way. You're meant to do AS, A2. I skipped A2, um, not because you're meant to do that. I just thought, oh, what will happen if I apply to UCAS and manage to get to go? I managed to get in and go to university, but I was really grateful for that because it gave me the opportunity to get um, tested because of the disability allowance fund there. Yeah, I got that at uni. Yeah, that was really helpful. <laughs> Definitely. So what, what was the degree in and who was it who recognised the need for support? Just out of interest, because for me, it was an acting. I went to a drama school mm -hmm. and it was a lot of people put their hands up when a student talked about being dyslexic. A lot of people were like, oh, hang on a minute. So there was a, it was like the immediate recognition. And a lot of people who were dyslexic chose to go into creative arts. Did you find it was more the subject that you picked, the university that you picked, or fellow um, uh, students? What was the, you know, the connection? Yeah, I relate with that. Definitely, I think, even from early on, um, would identify and relate with being like more creative rather than academic. Um, and I initially wanted to go to uni to do fashion marketing, but ended up just doing marketing. Um, I'm not too sure if like many people within my course um, were neurodivergent um but actually the need to get tested or like the idea or like just the prompt came from my mum she had spent a lot of money on tuition and I kept failing my GCSEs <laughs> so she was just like okay maybe there's actually something here so it like, came from her she's the one who encouraged me to like just see it through um and she actually ended up being right so yeah respect to the mum yeah. see that's that's I, that's the parent I want to be now mm -hmm. to my child, right? Which I think is not always, it's not always been possible. But yeah, when you spend a bit, which is the thing I'm doing, when you try everything you can to give them extra yeah. support because they're important in the classroom and you recognise even that may not be getting them where they need to be. Mm -hmm. You recognise something's got to be going yeah. on there. So, well, you know, interestingly then, so what What then, you, you went from uh, uh, the degree in marketing um, into... Uh, a marketing career right so just tell us a little bit about that transition and at what point you start to recognize then beyond dyslexia mm -hmm. um how your brain worked how it impacted how you get the best out of it and look at it as a strength um so i thought after uni i'm fine you know like navigated education like i don't really i think i'm going to be good i don't see how like if it's dyslexia or dyspraxia or dyslexia, I don't see how it's gonna still affect me. But I think it was just definitely the sort of things I think in marketing, depending on like the area of marketing, there can be a lot of planning involved. And I often felt like, oh, I've really struggled to plan my own life, <laughs> let alone plan for a campaign. Um, so I'd probably say like initially when it came to like the admin side of things, I kind of um I found it really challenging and I think as time has gone on I've definitely found ways to manage that um and I think I've just had to find the things that are strengths and the things that I enjoy which is definitely the idea side of things um as well as like even pitching weirdly enough um and then just like learn more about that um and then push for like more opportunities within that so I definitely say when it comes to work I'm still navigating that um and also still trying to lean into things that are strengths for me um but i definitely say along the way i've had to like do things that have been really challenging and just find ways that um i can get it done or do it yeah 
And from a marketing perspective, then, where are those strengths? Where are those skills? Because I, I know from experience, yeah. and especially we'll come on to the book as well. Uh, but the, but the, the, um, I, I really struggled with grammar because um, I learned English through the medium of Welsh, mm. and I couldn't speak either language very well and write either very well. So I found it very difficult. Um, so a barrier for me, even though I'm, I would say I work in recruitment, but I have a very interest, big interest in marketing, employer branding, mm. which is a lot around writing, um, in a personal brand and what have you. But for me, it's almost like the very basic elements of that I struggle with. So like being, having loads of creative ideas. Mm. Yeah. Loads of them. Mm. It's full of them everywhere. They're in the attic, they're on, and all over the place. Yeah. But, uh, actually doing something mm. with them which like other people would find much easier the basic task of i need to put this there and i need to create sentences yeah. and logic that bit i find really difficult and i can procrastinate about that for most what what do you find in the barriers and difficulties and then where the strengths exist within that so when you mentioned like spelling and grammar that really struck a chord because i remember especially like early on my first few jobs like i didn't reveal that i was dyslexic but they eventually found out when it came to like copy there might be like some grammatical issues and then i kind of had to reveal that yeah i am dyslexic so like yeah i'd probably say that's definitely been a challenge um definitely like I think as I've done it more like found ways to like um navigate that which might look like um, a second pair of eyes appear just getting someone to just peer review um even like AI now like chat GPT sometimes I just use it like can you spell check this for me um me too I, yeah <laughs> Microsoft as well like um I find that really helpful for like just spelling and grammar as well um it's a lot easier than writing things down um so i'm thankful that like we're moving in a digital kind of direction because that helps a lot um but in terms of strengths um especially when it comes to interviews i think more so the pitching side of things um i don't know if it's because initially like in um the earlier years of my life i struggled when it came to like just writing and jotting things down so i don't know if like the verbal um like just talking i don't know if that became a strength because that was easier for me um so when it comes to interviews um and i feel like i've had to interview a lot um it's probably been something that I'd say it's been a strength and I also enjoy whether it's even like presentations or pitching um just because I find it a lot easier than just jotting and writing things down just to be able to just speak it and say it out loud so that's interesting right well, the problems I have with that is I felt that earlier on in my life mm. interviewing I nailed it mm. I could nail into younger problem is as I got older the interviews became more formulaic mm. more structured more rigor um as as you kind of move up the seniority level mm. level they have much more structure um and and therefore they're less fluid and and then what i struggled with is because they they double down on stuff like you know uh you need to give specific examples mm. and the problem is with my head is mm. there's nothing specific about anything mm. i'm all over the place yeah. right? and in an unstructured interview mm. that can be quite in and energizing yeah. and the other the interviewing can feed off it mm. and it's like this great conversation mm. but when you've got a panel of three mm. and these are uh, senior people within an organization and they're making a big decision mm. 
then it's much more like you've got to answer this question. We need to know exactly what you delivered and how you delivered it. Mm. And then we're going to score you. I'm bombing out every single time. Yeah. So I, I and I've seen this with other people. You have this experience of earlier on being really adept at like mm. nailing interviews to then being the worst person at being interviewed mm. because you're having to remember very specific stuff. And my brain ain't remembering it. Yeah. Uh, so how do you feel about that? Do you um, get that sense? Um, have you, you know, if somebody asks you to write on a whiteboard, for example, I'm oh, really bad yeah. at spelling. Yeah. Well, I'm like crumbling <laughs> Me too. down. Confident to not confident yeah. like in a second. Yeah, no. Um, I would prefer not to write on a whiteboard. And I think, yeah, I'd definitely be quite analytical and critical of myself in terms of like, oh, can they read this? Is this spelt right? Um, can I present what's in my head accurately on the whiteboard? So no. But um, I think I can definitely see how like um it's kind of come to play in terms of some of the roles that I've kind of gone for. So I found previously I'd go for a lot of like startup roles just because I felt like there weren't as many steps in the recruitment process and it was more about like relationship and rapport uh, initially. Um, and then like, even now I'm in a contract role and, and it wasn't a formal interview. It was just like a consultancy chat. Um, so I can definitely see how that's come to play in terms of some of the roles that I'm like gone for. Um, but then I think when we're actually in those roles, that's a whole different situation um, because, yeah, I think it's one thing to get the job, but then actually the day to day, just some of the things, um, just trying to navigate that. So I think something that I've noticed is uh, for me, like just a bit more time when it comes to onboarding is always really helpful. And yeah. And it's evidence to prove that now, right? Yeah. There's government funding for young people with an EHCP, an educational health and care plan, mm. you can get a coach okay. directly government funded to help you specifically onboarding onto an organization. So it's really fascinating that you mentioned that, mm. that bit of extra time onboarding will accelerate your ability to deliver. Mm. That's so good. I, I didn't even know that. So that's, that would be really, that would really help a lot of people. Um, but yeah, like, I think I've learned that from like, Kind of trial and error i've been in some roles where um maybe there wasn't that much onboarding and it didn't really end too well um and i've definitely reflected and thought back to myself okay what what could have gone wrong or uh, what would have helped potentially um but yeah and i definitely would say i'm still navigating it um i did initially like marketing at uni and that was like five years ago um during the pandemic I did like a master's in digital journalism and not for the wisest reason at all I was like oh I want to learn more about YouTube <laughs> let me let me do the master's and thankfully it wasn't too academic it was like for my final project I did a documentary um but it was Brilliant. fun but <laughs> yeah and I'm, I'm a bit I like that. that I just tend to just do random stuff yeah impulsive yeah impulsivity so we mentioned it before, but I'll just because I, I forget otherwise. Yeah. And uh, the co-occurrence element, mm. which you were mentioning, you know, the the uh, the traits that you can identify with because you've had the educational psychologist go tick tick tick. Yeah. But the reality is, co-occurrence is the norm. Mm. So you they, you're much more likely to maybe also identify as ADHD or autistic yeah. as well as those because I, I do. You see, mm. and it, the, the the concept of co-occurrence was the biggest light bulb moment. It was like, what I can, 
I, I'm dyslexic, but I, I, that didn't always make sense to me mm. because loads of the stuff around dyslexia doesn't. Mm. But now these other things, good proportions of them do make sense yeah. to me. So when I put them all together, that feels a bit more like a whole experience of the human brain mm. rather than this kind of disparate bits that never really made sense. And then you join them, it's just like, boom. So yeah, just wanted to say that the, the you know, the co-occurrence is the norm. Yeah. Um, no. And Yeah. No, I definitely find that. And I think as I'm like navigating it, the thing that I sometimes um, I'm learning and kind of struggle with is trying to explain that to neurotypical people sometimes. So um, thankfully, I think when it comes to like close family, they don't necessarily have that uh, much of a deep understanding but they have grace um and they just say oh that's a shame um but yeah I think in a work environment sometimes or just like other environments just trying to explain okay this is this is where I'm at or this is potentially why I might do things the way that I do things that can be really difficult yeah, yeah and I think there's a lot there's a lot to be said for that and a lot of the challenges that we have is not just communication mm. between um, you, for example, or me, and somebody who's ident- uh, who we identify as maybe neurotypical. Mm. Um, but it's the other way around. So, like, it's both ways, right? It's They may be struggling to understand the way that we feel, uh, but equally, we may misunderstand some of what's going on with them, right? Because yeah. that's the reality. Their experiences, the way they see the world are, are different. And sometimes that can cause a bit of confusion or frustration mm. or stress. Um, and not just with um, organizations and managers, but actually with families. You say that uh, with grace, that, that yeah. helps you see when you've got people who really care. But what what when they don't, you know, uh, or they misunderstand or misinterpret, that can be really difficult. Mm. Um, what what led you to, uh, through these experiences, to then think, I'm going to write a book yeah. to share my lived experience and my journey with the world? Um, I was actually watching um, a short story on bbc called um or small acts was one of them but it was by steve mcqueen and yeah it was about the educational system in the 60s and i remember just crying when i was watching it because i was a boy he wasn't diagnosed as dyslexic but he really struggled with school um and it was set in the 60s but it didn't seem like much had changed yeah it just didn't seem like much had changed i was like how is this in the 60s and this was like my experience um and then it just made me kind of research a bit more and then I couldn't really find much like I couldn't find much like literature about like uh, neurodivergence when it came to like a lot of people from like an African Caribbean background and also also a lot to do with like the UK school system too um so then I just thought okay like if I can't find it maybe I should just write about it (laughs) yeah amazing Mm. And we are we are now starting to see more books coming out mm. um, from that lived experience, right? Yeah. But you, but it's almost at the same time. So I wonder what uh, you know because I've I've met with other authors mm. of books specifically maybe focused around um, dyslexia mm. um, or or other areas of uh, neurodivergence or neurodiversity. Um, but it it is it just feels like a wave at the moment of. Mm. Um, coming forwards with their own lived experience and we need we absolutely need more variety we need more representation mm. of different voices because mm. that's 
historically what we've really lacked. Mm. So that's amazing that it came from small acts and, and, yeah. and uh, uh, the particular show that you're mentioning because mm. I found that deeply powerful mm. uh, because of the, um, the, the connection. And I think culturally it, it sheds a light on something I think a lot of, not enough people know about, right? Yeah. Um, if it's not experience. Mm. So then, so then being driven to write this book because you didn't see yeah. anything that you could identify with that being written down mm. uh how long did it take well you know you mentioned you know marketing okay so yeah. you have some experience you wanted to communicate mm. but i know how difficult it is to sit down and put pen to paper yeah. or digital pen to digital paper yeah. and and write a book what was the process yeah. for you what drove you to complete it yeah at times i found it really challenging to be honest especially at the beginning because um even with this book I kind of felt like oh there's still more to my story it focuses more on school um and that was a while ago now not that long ago but still a, a bit of a while ago and I haven't really focused too much on like the day-to-day and like how um just being neurodivergent how it might affect me in the workplace too um but then I just said there was a part of me that, uh, where I had a sense of urgency because I kind of felt like this is probably for somebody and I felt like the longer I left it the less I know myself the less likely like I'm just not going to release it um I tend to like start projects and sometimes I don't always finish them um but yeah and I have a niece and I remember just seeing my niece and I'm pretty sure that she is neurodivergent too I, I think that, well it runs in families right yeah, exactly, so exactly and I just didn't want her to go through what I went through um at school and she was getting older and I was just putting this project off um, so in a way, looking at her and thinking about other individuals, I was like, no, I need I need to release this. It's probably for someone. It's not it's not about me anymore. Yeah. And that's really powerful. And I had the same realization, but through my daughter, mm. seeing my daughter and think, I'm not going to have her go through what I went through. Yeah. It'd be a different experience for her, but mm. it just uh, that was my urgency. Mm. You know, like I got something now, um, and, and it can't wait. And I think you're right. What like book two can be about the next phase, yeah. right? So yeah. get book get book one out yeah. so that so people can benefit. And I love the idea that young people can benefit because within a within a period of time now where young people coming through, mm. um, I say they're some of the older, right? So much older. So I'm um, but those young people coming through are the change makers, are the people who are demanding mm. changes, but not like the not like some some of us who will be like, right, we need flexibility in work because of childcare or whatever else. No generations coming through now going, no, 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 no. We need this because it is the right thing mm. for humanity, for human. And we're not, I, I read something today that generations had to leaving jobs like three times mm. faster than anybody else mm. because they're not getting what they want yeah. from that. Don't care what the employer says, mm. like, forget about it. Yeah. They're not, they're not going to do that to themselves. Uh, and therefore, I think being able to share those experiences, especially when we think about mm. neurodiversity and the barriers that individuals face, mm. you sharing that lived experience is powerful. And I'm, 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 I know, I know there will be so many people who um, will be looking for the voice, mm. um, and therefore you can then become that voice for them, which I uh, just incredible, basically. So, what are the, what were the what was the focus for you? What did you want to capture? You mentioned in as part of your education system. What was some of the kind of the big moments that you wanted to capture and share? What are the big uh, pieces 
that you wanted people to learn from yeah. your experience? Um, there's two chapters I love in particular. One's um, light at the end of the tunnel. I think sometimes when people are going through things, whether it's like failed exams or just a really hard day, um, often it's hard to kind of see that light at the end of the tunnel. And I just really wanted like people to be encouraged and um, to feel uplifted um, from just reading the book. And I think as well, the, um, there's another chapter called My Superpower. Um, I think especially in a lot of like African and Caribbean communities, there's a lot of stigma just when it comes to disability alone, let alone neurodiversity. And I don't know if there's much education when it comes to what um, neurodivergency is. Um, so I felt like, not even I felt like, there have been instances um, with people sometimes where I mention, I would mention that, oh yeah, I'm neurodivergent, and I'd be like, no, don't say that, or like, um, horribly, like in some spaces, um, and this wasn't even someone of like African and Caribbean descent, they were like, yeah, let me pray about that for you, and I'm here like, no, this is something I love, this is something that I think has been like, it's a gift. Um, so I felt like, no, there's a, there's a lot of education that's needed when it comes to this. And it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Um, but it's just understanding that and also seeing how um, I believe that like neurodivergent people can really add value and add a different perspective. Um, so just like communicating that too. And like, I'd probably say like, I do share about my experiences, but then also like I've done some research as well. So it's not just like someone saying, this is my experience. There's actually research that shows that no, like this is, these are facts and it's proven. Brilliant. Yeah. And so I think that what you're talking about there around people's lack of understanding is real, yeah. right? We, we do like, I've sat in front of an educational psychologist that said, oh, don't worry, about two and three kids grow out of being ADHD. I'm like, <laughs> what? like you're the person testing my daughter. You're deciding whether or not she gets this label. We don't really want the label. Mm. We just want understanding. Yeah. We want to give her like a, a sense of self and self-worth. Mm. Yet an educational psychologist, the professional there mm. is saying, oh, you might grow out of it. It'd be okay. And, and so with that level of misunderstanding across the board and within communities, these people are professionals. That person who said, let me pray for you, is somebody's mother or grandmother or sister. They may be an influencer within um, the community. They may be a, I don't know, a HR leader. Who knows? They could be all these different things, right? So they're not just that person who stood in front of you in that moment. Mm. So when you influence them, when you write your narrative, your mm. story, your journey, and you evidence it, um, which is what you've mentioned as well, mm. that, that doesn't just... Uh, educate a single person mm. it potentially transforms the experiences of all those people around them and that has a multiplying effect that is powerful and I think um, this putting pen to paper or putting voice to video or whatever it may be yeah. I think uh, I'm, I'm sure you don't but do not underestimate the power of that and for those listening that is why we should be reading more content from People writing today, right? It's great people wrote before, but I think people coming through today's experiences, that's really powerful stuff, right? Because not much has changed. You're right, mm. but that's why we need to change it. And yeah. here we sit today. We have the ability to change that. So I just applaud you for the work that you've done for um, early on in your career. Um, you are clearly very re resilient. 
um, being able to deliver what is very difficult for anybody, but for somebody like you and I uh, that may struggle to get things over the line, yeah. even more difficult. Uh, so just literally well done uh, and, and value and appreciate what you were giving to society and to the world. Thank you so much. Just statement of fact. <laughs> um, so hey, what else would you like to share with us? Anything else you would like to, to tell the audience? Um, what does the future look like for you? What are you excited about? What do you see for neurodiversity? as we kind of wrap up today's conversation. Sure, it might sound really simple, but I'm looking forward to more people getting tested, uh, getting diagnosed. Um, and I'm also looking for more understanding as well, um, because I think even for people who may not necessarily be neurodivergent, I think it'd be really helpful for them to learn more about it, especially educators too, um, because yeah, it definitely will help to relate with one another. But I think also, I think just for neurodivergent people, it will really help them to flourish just when people have that understanding and there's more inclusive spaces as well. Um, yeah, so like that's one thing I'm really looking forward to. Um, and I would love there to be like more talks and conversations for like within school, how they can um, kind of increase like screening. Um, it's something that I'm yet to kind of do a bit more research and into, but yeah, it's definitely something that's really close to my heart. Yeah, that's wonderful. And I think there's too many, bar from a dad's experience, I think mm. there's too many barriers to screening. And um, I think, you know, it took us four years on a waiting list to get my daughter diagnosed, right, which is tragic. Mm. And I know others are not even able to get on that process. Mm. They're not even, so they're four years away, but they've not even started yeah. because they can't get over the hurdle of convincing the school. Mm. Uh, so I would love to see a world, Professor Amanda Kirby, who I co-authored my book with, mm. um, she's got something called the Do It Profiler, which is a real low bar to entry to just understand your strengths and challenges. Mm. And I'd like to see more mechanisms of that, mm. not necessarily diagnosis, yeah. uh, that can come, mm. but what most people want is just uh, some understanding of what's going on in their brain yeah. and the ability to make adaptations that can help them be their best selves. Like we shouldn't be waiting four years for that. Mm. We should be, that should be applied almost immediately yeah. at need. Uh, and, and we don't need an educational psychologist to tell us that, mm. right? Uh, so I, I don't want to, I don't want to disconnect the importance of diagnosis mm. and, and that route because it allows us protection within if, uh, legal rights, depending on where you are in the world, and mm. um, and therefore we can't take that away. Mm. It's important we've got it, but we need to speed up the ability for people to get help because mm. that's the reality. A lot of people just want to help and they want to help today. Yeah. Um, whether that's diagnosis or not, that is just child in need, struggling mm. with maths. They're not going to learn the times tables in the way that you're teaching it. So yeah. just help them mm. rather than put additional barriers up so mm. i love that i'm all for it mm. uh, and um yeah amanda and i uh, uh, our next venture together is going to be linked to that exact topic around mm. the education setting and supporting educators and parents and carers yeah. um children so watch this space for that listen it's been incredible to have you on thank you so much for connecting and sharing your experiences where can they go and find you where can they go and buy your book? What should they do next? Sure. Um, 
so on Amazon, if you type in Black and Neurodiverse, it should come up and the longer title is Black and Neurodiverse, the intersectionality of being Black and Neurodiverse. Um, so they can buy it there, then also online on Waterstone, um, people can buy it there. In terms of connecting with me, um, I'm using Instagram as a platform, so Shay Ojed, um, S-H-E-Y-O-J-E-D, um, I'll be posting like more insight from the book and more things to do with it on there um to be honest I'm trying to be a bit more intentional and push myself a bit more I'm not really someone who likes too much attention but I'm really passionate about the cause so I have to go with myself yeah <laughs> brilliant well you've done a great job today clearly um whatever you want to achieve with this I have complete confidence you'll go knock it out of the park Thank keep the energy keep it going here to support you Thank the community you. anybody listening please reach out to if you think you can add value support um or you just want to connect with I'm sure she'd like to uh, to build uh, wider connections yeah. so amazing to have you on thank, thank you. you so much You've been listening to Neurodiversity, Eliminating Kryptonite to Enabling Superheroes. Hope you enjoyed the show. You can like, share, comment, find us anywhere on any good podcasting host. You can also do some further reading up and buy my book, uh, co-authored with Professor Amanda Kirby neurodiversity at work you can get it on amazon with kogan page our publisher and pretty much any other good bookstore enjoy look forward to your feedback and keep listening to the show thank you